0: So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, and let's stand as we read God's Word together to honor that it's His Word and not man's. If anyone needs a Bible, by the way, just, just casually put your hand in the air and someone will, will bring one to you. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again, God, for your gospel of grace, the way that you redeem us, the way you bring us into your family and call us by your own name. God, we, uh, we celebrate you this morning, and we pray that you would tune our hearts and our ears and our minds to your word that we might hear everything you have for us. May my words um, be honoring and accurate to yours. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we, we looked last week at a really famous passage, the, the Fruit of the Spirit passage, but it's also the uh, Works of the Flesh passage. And, and after we kind of work through this, the sort of two ways of life, these, these two ways of living, these two modes of being, you can either live life uh, by the works of the flesh, which we should be putting to death by the power of life within us, or we can live uh, by uh, the Spirit, and, and it produces certain uh, fruit in our life that's characterized by these things we maybe have memorized, goodness, peace, uh, self-control, joy. And, and here, Paul gets into a series of really what amounts to three commands and three warnings. Three commands and three warnings in this passage, but they really are uh, dependent upon uh, what he's just said. He begins here in verse 1 of, of chapter 6, saying, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and, and really it's a little hard to capture in the English, but maybe even if one of you is caught, any transgression. Remember, he's just mentioned the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty stern warning. We talked about that last week. But, But here, Paul's you know, bringing it back, he's bringing it back to their context, what he expects of them, knowing that they are in the body of Christ, knowing that they have believed the gospel, having seen the work of the Spirit in their lives when he was present with them, even if one of you is caught in a trespass, even if that were to happen. And so Paul's recognizing the fact that lapses do happen in the Christian life. And we know that, we understand that, and we talked about that last time, that really, when Paul is talking about the works of the flesh and those who do not inherit the kingdom of God, there's a sense there that this is, a, this is what characterizes your life. Your life is given to these things. It's unrepentant. It's unrepentant sin. Because that's what differentiates the sins of Christians and the sins of non-Christians, is really this one idea of repentance. Do we place our faith and trust in Christ to make us whole again? Right, Because the, the church is not, and, and I'm not the first to say this, but the church is not a place for holy people. Not, not of our own merits, at least, not of our own gifts and abilities, but the church is, in many ways, like a hospital, right? We are not the people who say we've got it all together, and we've got it figured out, and we're living righteously, in fact, it's just the opposite is true. We're the people who say that we know that we don't have our stuff together, that we know that we have a problem, and all we can do is throw ourselves at the healing foot of the cross for Jesus Christ to restore us and make us whole. And so we're not the people who think we've, we're better than each other. We, we don't think we're righteous and the rest of the world is is unrighteous. We don't think we're holier than thou. Those who are in Christ know, in fact, that no, we are just as sinful as thou. But we know the Savior who makes us whole. And so we know that even on this side of the cross, we still will stumble. And that's what Paul has in mind. Even if anyone is caught in any transgression, and this catching, has the idea of surprise. And it's unclear whether the surprise is the person is involved in sin and, and, and maybe another Christian happens to catch them in the act. Maybe that's the surprise. Or, or maybe the surprise is, as I kind of think might be more the, the emphasis here, the surprise is, is sort of this, have you ever, I know you have, I know you have because we're all human and we're, I've been like this and we're all like this, um, you kind of get caught up in a, a, a mistake, you get caught up in a mess, and you kind of all of a sudden you step back and you realize, what did I do? How, how did I get here? How did I put myself in this situation? How, how did I walk so far away from my God who loves me? Felt that way before? I, I kind of think that's, that's the surprise of it. You know, Sometimes when we're, we're caught in a sin, when we're trapped by a sin, We're blinded to it. We we don't realize how arrogant we're being, or we don't realize how um, hostile we're being, um, how defiant we're being. We don't realize how selfish we're being. Uh, Whatever the the issue is that we're dealing with, and then suddenly it kind of hits us, and it's like, how in the world did I let myself walk away from my Savior? I, I kind of get the fear that that's more of the surprise that, that Paul has in mind here. And, and if anyone when we find ourselves in that sort of transgression, that sort of trespass, one of those biblical words for sin, we all know what trespassing is, right? It's you cross a boundary you're not supposed to, right? You, you step into that neighbor's yard that you're not supposed to. When I was growing up, there was a, uh, I did this paper route, I didn't have a paper route, but I, I sometimes uh, substituted for, for some friends and neighbors and things like that. When they had, We had a little one called the Penny Saver uh, newspaper, and they had deals and stuff in it like that. And I was, I was substituting for the Bitterman kids, and, uh, and, the, and the Bitterman said to me, whatever you do, don't step on Ms. Smith's lawn. Whatever you do, you can't step on Ms. Smith's lawn because she's crazy, and she will get you. And, and, I mean, we, we all knew Ms. Smith. No one knew Ms. Smith, but we all knew Ms. Smith's lawn, because she was the one who would be out there with a pair of scissors making sure every blade of grass was the exact same height, you know. And so if you stepped in her lawn, enough, I mean, you would, it was that kind of lawn where it would leave a footprint, you know. It was so perfect that it would leave an impression of your foot in the grass. And so we knew, you know, that, that was a border. If you, you crossed that line and Ms. Smith found out about it, you would hear about it. And so you did not touch her. And that's, that's one word the Bible uses for sin, is sort of crossing that boundary. You've crossed Ms. Smith's line, and, and you've, you leave a mark there. And, and the, the interesting thing about it, it's, it's a different type of, of, of sin, maybe, than the sort of defiant, I'm going to take this path, I'm going to take this highway to hell, and I'm going to dwell on it. It's a misstep. It's like I might have been walking down the sidewalk and I may have, may have uh, lost my balance because I was being careless, or I may have lost my balance because, uh, I was, or maybe I just wanted to spite Ms. Smith, so I put my foot on her lawn. Um, okay, I did that. Um, <laughs> I wasn't a Christian at the time. Um, it was grass, but... Um, it, it was just one step. It was a misstep. I didn't repeat it. it, it you see, there's a, there's a little bit of a difference here with the idea of a trespass sometimes. And and so when this happens, in the course of our Christian life, what do we do with it? And and the command is um, interesting, it's obvious, and, and we don't want to miss what he has to say. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is a command. And so this is a, a, a rule that is being imposed on all of us who call ourselves by the name Christian. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now, when Paul says spiritual, this is, he means that you are a person who has been given to the spirit, you're controlled by the Spirit, not, not perfectly, but your life is characterized by the Spirit. And rightfully speaking, that should be all Christians. All right, so if you really want to understand, people talk about, are you spiritual? He's not a very spiritual Christian. I don't know what that means to say you're not a very spiritual Christian. What it means to be spiritual biblically is to be empowered by and given to the Holy Spirit. And so a spiritual person, you know what a spiritual person is? A spiritual person is somebody who's not under the law. Verse 18. A spiritual person is one whose life is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A person who is crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. They're not perfect. But they have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, at work in their life, producing a bounty of of righteousness and moving them toward holiness. All right? And so, if you're in that camp, which we as Christians all should be, we're not caught in a sin at that particular moment, we should restore Him in a spirit of gentleness. That sounds good but it's something we don't practice very much. But this is a command here. This is a command um, that we are obligated to follow, and that is that if we see somebody caught in a sin, that we have to restore them. Now, what does that look like? What does that mean? This, this idea of, of restoring somebody is but it has this indication that something's not perfect, something's not whole. The, the idea is used in, in the Gospels when uh, Jesus' disciples, uh, you know, John and Peter and, and, and James, they were fishermen, and it says they were out mending their nets. You know, if you're casting a net out in the water and you're trying to catch fish, if there's a giant hole, I mean, there's supposed to be some holes in the net, right? But if there's a, a rip in the net, you're not going to catch many fish. And so, there's a deficiency in the, the net. It's not all that it should be, and you're patching it up to make it whole, to make it the way it should be again. You're repairing it. And that's what's behind this idea of restoration, is that when we're caught in a sin, there's a deficiency, there's a... There's a damage in the relationship between us and and other believers, and there's a damage in the relationship between us and God, and and we need to be restored. We need to be mended back. We need to be brought back to wholeness before God. And we have an obligation to do that for other Christians in our lives. We have an obligation to restore them. What does that look like? Well, that's going to depend on the sin. It does not mean... Um, It does not mean being a blowhard. It does not mean chastising them. It doesn't mean wagging a finger, because what does Paul say here, uh, for our own benefit, in a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of meekness, a spirit of humility, it's translated in other places. All these ideas are kind of wrapped up here, and we get the idea that this is something where we do not sit on our judgment seat, We do not sit on our throne. We don't look down on the person. No, on the other hand, we have a meekness about ourselves because we know we're just as capable of being pulled into sin as that person we're dealing with. And recognizing our own weakness and recognizing our own fragility, we come alongside them. We put our arms around them. We love on them to do what needs to be done to bring them back to where they need to be. And there's no one size fits all recipe that Paul is giving us here, what that looks like. We could talk about church discipline. The Bible talks about church discipline. Um, that's not necessarily all that's in view here. But what do people need in, in their weakness, in their sin? What is it that is missing in their particular case? If, if um, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of an example. If, if it's a jacket that needs to be mended in and the elbow's worn out, you wouldn't be doing much help by giving them a new collar for their, for their jacket. right? If, if the zipper was busted on somebody's jacket, you wouldn't be doing much good by providing them a new pocket. For the jacket and so our response to people needs to be personal it needs to be it needs to be sensitive to who they are and what their trapping is and what needs to be done to restore them and so it's going to be very individualized but it's a command we are responsible for them and Paul follows this up with a warning. He says, "Keep watch on yourself." lest you, too, be tempted. And I think normally when we read this, we hear, well, yeah, if somebody's caught in sin, I should be helping them in a very careful way because I could be caught up in the sin, too. Um, And I think that's true. I think that's true. My experience has been, though, that when I'm dealing with somebody who's wrestling with a sin and I I feel called to, to speak into their life, it's usually not a type of situation where I'm going to be tempted to just jump into whatever they're doing. Um, So I'm not sure that's the primary thing that, that Paul has in mind here, just knowing from my own experience. I think the warning might be a little bit more like this. If we don't restore our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we don't proactively look to support them in their weakness, in their time of need then those things can fester, those things can grow, those things can spread within the church, within the body of Christ, and its impact can spread even to me and and to other people. There's a danger of letting sin go unchecked. What started off as me just wantonly stepping on Ms. Smith's lawn, now turns into a parade of all my friends wantonly stepping across her lawn every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. just to spite her. Um, we are like that as people. We're like that as human beings, aren't we? And when we leave a sin unchecked, we're also tacitly suggesting to other people in the congregation that that sin is no big deal, or maybe even that that sin is not a sin. And when you tacitly send that message, then you're giving support to other people who might be tempted to follow in that same path. And so we deal with sin not only for the sake of the person who is caught in it, but for the sake of ourselves and the others around us who might also get trapped in it who might also get caught in it by virtue of our inaction. And so there's there's a warning in this about the importance of ensuring it. And then Paul steps back and says, you know what? It's not even about a sin. He gives us another command. He says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here He's stepping back and saying, you know what? Uh, It's not even just about people's sins. Yeah, that's in view. And and that that for sure, if somebody's in a sin, we want to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But whatever the burden is, our brother or sister in Christ is dealing with, we have an obligation, a command here, to bear their burdens. By all accounts, sin is a burden. By all accounts, sin is a, uh, a burden on us, and it is definitely one of those things that we, we help each other support. But now Paul has broadened the scope and said, whatever it is that's being laid on the back of a, of a fellow Christian that they can't carry, we need to help lift them up. This type of burden here is a type of burden that is burdensome. It is extraordinarily heavy weight. Think back-breaking weight is kind of the uh, idea that we have here. And it is... Um, Something that a person could not easily carry themselves. And so we are commanded to come up under those burdens and and sort of shoulder those burdens alongside a person so that nobody is crushed under whatever burdens this life throws at us. And this life will throw burdens at us. Scripture is absolutely clear. We are not called to a life of ease and comfort. At least we should not expect that to be the norm. And sometimes we're deluded into thinking that that might be the norm as comfortable 21st century American Christians. But the reality is, is that for the vast majority of our fellow brothers and sisters, for 20 centuries or so now, that has not typically been the case. And there are no promises this side of eternity that our load in this life will always be light. Paul says we are destined for persecutions. Paul describes this entire world, this side of eternity, as this momentary affliction. He describes his 60, 70, 80 years of life on earth as a momentary affliction. And so to live for Christ is an affliction. Even Jesus himself told us. He says, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Take up this international symbol of pain and suffering and death and follow me. That's what the cross was. Across the Roman Empire, through various nations and countries and states, they knew when you saw a cross, someone was going to suffer and someone was going to die. And so our lives are about throwing aside everything we might cling to and hold to on this earth for the sake of something greater that we have in Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be burdens that come from that. Some of them come from sin. Sin. And those that don't come directly from sin are typically byproducts of sin. They could be disease. They could be financial woes. They could be economic hardships. They could be family strife. They could be any one of a number of things mental health issues. Um, and they could be sin. And we are supposed to be so aware of each other's lives that. When we see these crushing burdens on people, we swoop in and we lift them up. Sometimes we carry the other end of the sofa. Sometimes we take the entire load from them because it's not too heavy for us at this moment. But we don't let anyone be crushed. Now, I would suggest that the only way that this command is even remotely possible is if we are deeply involved in the lives of each other. How in the world can we possibly know what's crushing someone? How can we possibly know what's weighing down on their soul unless we're living life with them, unless we're interacting with them, unless we are um, involved with them? I've been slowly uh, making rounds, and I'm not pointing anybody out. So if anybody feels like they're being pointed out, I'm not pointing you out. But I've been slowly trying to get together with, uh, especially the men in here, and, and trying to get together with them one-on-one uh, when I can. And I haven't hit everybody yet, and so if I haven't yet, just come talk to me. Usually, like, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to get around to everyone. Um, and some of you guys have got to meet with uh, a couple times, but one of the things that's crazy like, you know, I'll meet somebody, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, they've got it all together. I mean, they, they've, I mean they're, just, they're just solid. They're a rock. And I don't know why I think that way, because, you know, my entire 37 years of existence should tell me that no one is like that. But when you look at people from afar, you, you're going to get that impression, right? And then you sit down, you talk with somebody, and you're like, wow, I mean, they've got burdens. You know, they don't have everything together. I mean, not that that should have surprised me, you know, But I had no idea what they were. And you know, it, 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 how do I pray for that person? How do I get up under their burden? How do I shoulder that burden if I have no idea what they're dealing with? It like, wouldn't have even been possible unless I took a little bit of time. And I don't, I get paid to do this. So um, it's a little bit easier for me. So I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back. Um, in fact, I usually feel rather inadequate. You know, when I, when I find this stuff out, cause it's like, crap, I should have known that earlier. You know, I should have been aware of that sooner. Um, but the point is, we have to be together. We have to be in community one way or another. It's why it's one of our, our values is to, is to live in community. It's part of our mission is to live in community. It's why we, we stress the growth groups so much. Not that it's the only way, but it is one way that we can get a little bit more intimate and a little bit uh, tighter with each other and see a little bit more of what's going on in each other's lives. But I'll tell you what, if you're just involved with a growth group, it's probably not enough. You know, are you, are you getting together with people one-on-one, one-on-two? Are you getting that cup of coffee now and then? Are you, are you grabbing some tea? Are you, uh, whatever you do, you know, but um, you go bowling with them. I don't know. You knit with them. I don't know. You, people have different hobbies and habits. It doesn't matter, but you're spending time with each other. Are you in life with one another? Are you asking each other tough questions? Are you finding out what makes them tick? Or are they just a face in the crowd? We're not called to be faces in the crowd with one another. And that doesn't mean you're going to have an intimate one-on-one relationship with every person in a church, even a church that's not that big like this one. But it does mean that we are in being intentional about being in each other's lives or there's no possible way we can obey this commandment. It's just not doable. Second commandment, second warning. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, that's interesting. Uh, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here's what Paul is saying. We have a tendency to prop ourselves up, don't we? We have a tendency to to recognize that we've got it together, recognize with big quotation marks about it. Uh, when Paul says what in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, if anyone thinks he is strong, you know, beware, take heed, lest he falls, for no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to endure, but will provide a way out so that you might stand up under it. But if you think you're strong, be careful. Because you might be on the verge of a fall. And I've often found in my life that it's when I think everything is going great and everything is going swimmingly that I get a little bit slack in my devotion to Jesus. And that's usually when a fall occurs. And what Paul is reminding us is we are not somethings. But really, we are nothings apart from Jesus Christ. Our entire value, our entire worth in this world, our entire identity is wrapped up in the identity of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that that constantly pits us against one another, constantly asks us to say, how am I doing compared to the Joneses? how much money am I making? How much power do I have in my job? Um, you know, how much respect do I have in the church? Um, it's always a metric. It's always a competition. It's always a, a hierarchy. And where do I fall in this? Who am I above and who am I below? And what we know in the gospel, what the gospel always reminds us is that. Outside of Jesus Christ, we have nothing, and we are nothing, because we are simply sinners who are desperately in need of a Savior, and only in Him do we find that. And when we, no matter what we've done on the other side of the cross, when we are caught up into Christ Jesus and His goodness, then He says, you are mine. You are mine. You are a son of the King. You're a child of God. You are an inheritor in the kingdom of my Father, And no matter what the world says of you, no matter all your faults, no matter all your failings, that is your identity. But apart from him, we really are nothing. Because all that we have and all that we could hold up and all that the world holds dear is fading away and will be destroyed. And so it's effectively nothing. And yet, we nonetheless, we play the games and we have a tendency to look at ourselves, pat ourselves on the back and say, look how great I am. When the reality, the sober reality is that I'm another person who's weighted down by heavy burdens that I might need my friend, my brother to help me carry. And so we're in this together. Third command, verse 4. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. What Paul is saying here is if you think you're something when you're really nothing, look, what Paul is asking us to do is be introspective. Examine your own life. Look at it through the lens of the Holy Spirit. Look at your own life and and ask yourself, what's really of value in your life? What are the, the sins you're holding on to in your own life? What are the things that you've not given over to Christ? The things that you're still clutching in this world? Your education, your family, your religious acumen, your bank account? What is it that you're, you're still clutching and holding on to in this world instead of recognizing, God, this is yours, and as long as you leave it in my hands, I will steward it. But if you want to remove it from my hands, it's yours to do with that as well. That should be our attitude. And, and what is it in our lives that we're still clutching on to? that we haven't given over to Christ. Where, where are we? Where, where are we with a sober analysis, no, no pride, but we say, you know what, God, by your grace, by your spirit, I'm doing well in this area, and I thank you and I praise you for that. So Paul's asking us to be introspective, test our own work, and see at the end of the day what you really have to brag about. And I think there's a bit of irony in Paul here. I could be wrong, but I think there's a bit of irony in his statement here in that he's saying... And we all know that when you've done that work and you really examine yourself, there's probably not a lot that you're going to be able to say, yeah, that's me. You're going to look at yourself and you're going to say, you know what? Of the things that I have of value, God, they're by you. And I wouldn't have even gotten those things done if it wasn't for the sake of the other Christians and the other believers you put in my life. Hence he says, and then his reason to boast boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. I think the implication there is when we really look at what we've done well for the sake of the gospel, what we really actually have left at the end of the day, even those things we can't hold to our own, but they wouldn't have been there without the people that God put in our lives, the Christians, who spoke truth into our lives, who shaped us, who molded us, who, who were the voice of God to us in a season. And I think if you're truthful, you can, you can look at those people. I, I could name a half dozen names off the top of my head of people who, if it wasn't for them, I don't know where I would be. And it was ultimately God. But what can I exclaim as my own? I would be nothing if it wasn't for the church of God. Or Paul's last warning: Each will have to bear his own load. I know this sometimes is um, uh, confusing. People take this verse, uh, verse five, and then um, verse two. Verse two says, "Bear one another's burdens," and so fulfill the law of Christ. And verse five says, "For each will have to bear his own load." Oh, so there must be like different types of loads, or or you know, Paul's just contradicting himself, or you know, what is? He... And, and this is one of those things where it's just it's just weird. It, it sounds a lot more closely related in English than it probably did to. Paul's original readers. They, they probably weren't like flummoxed by this at all. It's just one of those things that in English it kind of sounds a little bit more like the same idea than it originally did in Greek. And don't try and read too much creative stuff into the type of load. Um, but in, in the sense that Paul is talking about here, I think for each will have to bear his own load. He's talking about the, the fruit of that introspection you did. The testing of your own work. And you'll see, you know, you'll see where you fall short of Christ and what he would have for you. And you'll see where you haven't by the grace of God and by the grace that he's put into other people. But there will be a day, as as Paul talks about numerous places elsewhere, we will face Christ on the day of judgment and we will have to answer for all those things. And on that day, Jesus isn't going to look at me and and, uh, and and say, "Well, why didn't your wife Sarah do this for you? you know? why, why didn't your fellow elders, Brian and Philip, do this for you?" No, on, on that final day, there's, Christ is going to approach me and, and say, "I gave you this. Were you faithful with what I gave you?" And, and that's the sense in which each of us will have to carry our own load. so it's a warning, and it's also an encouragement. Um, we know that we will face our Savior, we know we will face uh, our Judge, and at the same time, we know that by His blood, not by our works, we will be accepted into His presence. And that's the joy, and that's the hope, and that's the goodness. But at the same time, we're going to be responsible for what we did with this life. Just like the, the parable of the talents, and and, and Jesus told the parable, remember, uh, he gave to different servants different amounts of talents, a unit of money, a unit of currency called a talent, That's where we get the English word talent from. And, and Jesus said, go, and, and, and I'm going to go away for a while and, and steward this resource well while I'm gone. And, and one steward puts the money away and invests it and makes tons more money with it. And another he had a little bit less money, but he did similarly. He invested the money and he gets tons more, but, but one was uh, fearful and so he hid the money and didn't produce anything with it. Um, and, and when Jesus, in the parable, the, the, the master represents Jesus, returns, he holds them accountable for the increase, for the fruit that was produced from what he gave them. And that's very much, I think, the idea here in some minds. So test your own work. What is a value? Are you living up to? It's not that at the last day, you will receive your final judgment on the basis of your works. It's not that you will be ushered into Christ's presence or away from Christ's presence on the basis of your works. But there will be an accounting of your works on that last day. And that burden we will bear alone. With that in mind, though, this is why in this short space that we have between now and Christ's return, between now and and our own death, we so desperately need the community of each other knowing that we're weak, knowing that we're frail, knowing that we're hurting, knowing that we carry a weight of sin and we carry the weight of all the consequences of sin that have been built into our lives for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And we need each other to shoulder those burdens, that we can grow in the Spirit, that we can grow in holiness, and we can grow to be more like His Son that's my challenge for you this week. Um, How are you bearing those burdens of one another? And I encourage you, if you're not in a growth group, check one out this week. That's a great start. If you are in a growth group, let me challenge you. Who are you going to go a little deeper with? Who are you in the process of going deeper with right now? If you've got someone or someone's great, who else can you add? Or how can you make those relationships even deeper? If you don't have people in your life that you're going deeper with right now, then that's your challenge for this week. Find someone. Find someone. And I, I know I'm kind of pushing time here, but I'll give you a story. When I was in uh, college, um, one of my best friends now, his name is Chris also, um, we got to know each other in, in, in college, in the dorms. And I don't remember how this um, took place, but we were having one of those late-night dorm conversations. And, and we realized we, we kind of liked each other. You know, we were, we were kind of buddies. We were very different personalities. But, um, but for some reason, God seemed to be drawing us together. And we just had this conversation one night saying, you know what, if we need to take this friendship seriously. And it was kind of a weird conversation for two guys to have. But, but we had this conversation, you know what, if we're, this, we don't want this to just be another like, dude I hang out with. But like, let's take this seriously and really dig into each other's lives. Let's really invest in each other's lives. For us, that meant we started meeting every Saturday uh, for breakfast. I think it was breakfast, maybe it was lunch. I don't know, because I'm not a morning guy, so maybe it, that was hard to believe. Maybe it was lunch. But we met every Saturday and, and we decided we were just going to dig into each other's lives. And we were going to build into each other. And so it was very intentional. And sometimes, you know, it's weird because he and I just don't see eye to eye sometimes. We have very different personalities. um, And yet we've always kind of respected that difference, and we've pushed each other to be better men. And and that was a little bit of a, a strange, awkward conversation to have, but it was very intentional. And if you don't have that in your life, let me just suggest maybe this week you pick up the phone or, you know, text, you know, someone you've been thinking about, and say, you know what? You're kind of cool. Maybe our friendship can go a little deeper. I see you giggling over there. Hope is not at me. Maybe it's the Spirit talking to you. Um, Find someone to to sharpen. Find someone to go deeper with. Somebody who's not going to be afraid to point out your faults. Make that a rule of the relationship. That if we point out each other's faults, we're not going to get pissed off and walk away. We're going to work through that and say thank you. Because we're going to do it in a spirit of gentleness. We're going to do it in a spirit of love. Lay out the ground rules. There's nothing wrong with laying out ground rules, right? But this is so important. It's a command. So, what are we doing to obey it? And let's start working on that this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, yeah, you called us by your grace. But God, I thank you especially that by, you didn't just call me, but you called us. And you called us together, and you put us here together for a reason. And and sometimes we look around, and we don't know how the pieces fit. And yet, God, we believe and we know that you put those pieces here for our benefit, for our sanctification, for our growth in mutual holiness and mutual love. And God, I pray that we would become a body of people who really um, evoke community and are known by a deep and passionate love for one another. May we start in small ways on that this week. God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.